Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. I am super excited to be here with my good friend, Lynn Alden. Lynn, thanks for coming on. Happy There's to be not here. much to talk about, is there? <laughs> Never is, I guess. <laughs> so the, the biggest thing in the news, I want to talk about that first. And uh, that is you calling Elon Musk a cuck. So can you explain that to us really quick? <laughs> well, so I think it's a problem of false marketing, right? So, I, you know, I think that it, Elon, say, it, you know, in the SpaceX thing, I think is interesting. I, I'm not really that critical of SpaceX. I think when you get out to the other stuff, it's really about marketing and it's really about hype and it's really about selling equity. You know, the one thing he's really good at is is selling people on an idea, selling equity. And the problem is that the, the, the things he uses to sell equity are not right. usually very true, which is, you know, when... He, when Anyone's good at marketing, it's that fine line. You want to like present a positive vision, but you want to be accurate because you want people to you want to build that reputation over time. And I think that's what something like, you know, say Steve Jobs nailed really well. He painted a very optimistic uh, thing, but he, he generally backed it up. Whereas, for example, with Tesla, it's always like, you know, full self-driving and, you know, we're not even going to need steering <laughs> wheels and a million robo-taxis and things like that. <laughs> and then the timeline comes and go and it's not even not even remotely close. It's not even like you're off by a little bit. It's like you're not even in the realm of and people actually buy those cars or buy that equity based on that assumption. And we kind of saw recently with the whole uh, foray into Twitter, you know, he, he kind of positioned himself as anti-censorship, kind of positioning themselves with things that are good. But then he goes around and just does the same thing. It's like, you know, here's the new king, same as the old king uh, right, type right. of thing. And I got yeah, I got provoked because I, you know, was, uh, uh, Substack was blocked. I don't even use Substack. But then I saw Doomberg. Doomberg yeah. was like retweeting and I couldn't even like Doomberg's tweet. And I'm like, is this this is really what we're doing here? This is like clownish. Well, I thought it was a fantastic tweet. It was really cool. So if you're not following on Lynn, you'd or following Lynn on Twitter, you're, you're definitely missing out on some incredible charts, incredible facts, but also every once in a while, some <laughs> great entertainment. You know, that brings me to a thought experiment. I'd love to get your opinion on this. I've tried to think about this many times, you know, prior to the, the, the last wave of inflation that we've had and higher interest rates. But I always thought to myself, okay, out of all the businesses that are out there that people really rely on nowadays, such as Uber would be a great example. How many of these businesses would actually exist if interest, if Fed funds had never gone below 5%? And so I, do you think Tesla would exist today? I mean, I think it would exist. I mean, it, it existed before that time. Um, I don't think it'd be on the scale that it is. Uh, I think, you know, the problem with zero interest rates, it allows, so what it does is basically when you have no cost of capital, if the cost of capital is roughly zero, um, basically people monetize other things. It's like you can't hold value in cash. You have to monetize other things. So you pay up for real estate, you pay up for equities, things like that. And the emphasis goes on very long duration assets. Uh, and the, the longest duration asset out there is basically a tech stock, something that, right. you know, if you have a vision that it's going to be super valuable over the next 30 years, even if it's not profitable today, which is, you know, kind of the emphasis of, say, startup investing. That, that's fine for a period of time. That makes sense while you build up the foundation. Um, but when you have it at an extended zero interest rate environment, it, it increases the runway of that that unprofitable period where people, investors don't really care about profits. And that opens the percentage of malinvestments that happen because, you know, there should be a feedback loop. If something's not getting profitable over a period of time, something's generally not fully right. But if you have that zero rate environment, you're able to push that out much further. And so there's basically an environment where companies are able to be unprofitable. They're able to, um, you know, keep selling equity at very high valuations, uh, either to pay employees or to, you know, kind of keep funding their operations by always having new investors coming in, a greater and greater number of shares outstanding. Um, and that works until, you know, you have some sort of inflation or, or higher rates and you you go up. And then basically now that there's an actual cost of capital, if you, if you can get, you know, almost 5% in cash equivalents, suddenly you're going to pay a lower equity valuation for some of these companies. So then the problem is that they lose some of their funding source uh, because they can't just keep issuing very high valued equity. And then they have to raise prices of their products, uh, basically, you know, to, to stop, you know, kind of selling at a loss and then the problem is that their growth rate slows down because some of their growth was only there because they were structurally underpricing their product yeah then, yeah if you could explain that in in detail that was fascinating i think i heard you talking about this with adam the other day our good buddy adam taggart yeah and this so was the, a great point 
Yeah, so the problem is, you know, if, if you make a business selling $20 bills for $10, what is the total adjustable market to that business? It's infinite. Right. I, I, you know, anyone who finds you is going to be like, yeah, I'll do that. So you're going to get tons of customers. Of course, it's only, you know, if you can paint a vision and, and you get outside investors to keep funding that lousy business, it's going to grow very big. The problem is that that business now tries to get more profitable, right? And says, we're going to sell $10 bills for, you know, $10. Uh, suddenly your your customer base dries up because it, you know <laughs> your customer base is only there because you were you were actually providing too much value for the price because you didn't have to be sustainable you were you had a bunch of investors that were willing to fund it essentially you know always with the promise of in the future somehow it'll it'll be profitable which again makes sense when you're a startup it makes sense for a period of time but eventually that you know you have to start kind of making a sustainable business and so with a lot of these companies whether it's you know DoorDash and things like that uh, you know, across the spectrum, you have these kind of perpetually unprofitable companies. And, you know, in Tesla's case, they eventually got somewhat profitable, you know, in large part because of, you know, subsidies, carbon credits, that kind of thing. Uh, but essentially, they, they had periods of time where they were, say, junk rated, uh, didn't have a lot of cash, had quite a bit of debt, were not profitable, but they were able to kind of meme themselves into critical mass profitability, right? You can yeah, issue, well issue yeah, issue basically make a lot of promises, inflate the equity valuation, sell a lot of new equity. And then suddenly, you know, that kind of actually damages part of the bear case. That's what happened over the past few years, which is, you know, again, it's it's fine if you're, you know, painting, I think, of a realistic but optimistic uh, portrait of what you're going to do and you're, you're still sticking within the realm of truth. But when you fully venture out and you're not even remotely close to the things you're building, I think that's where it, you know, it, it starts to become an ethics issue. Yeah, yeah, and they, it's like the business model goes from their business to just selling equity, and it, yeah. you saw that with the SPACs too, right? All you needed was a great story, and you just have all this money flooding in, and then the, whoever's running that SPAC, well, they can charge fees, they can make all this profit, uh, and all they need is not necessarily good business, but just a good story. Yeah. And then when the tide goes out, there's actually a cost of capital. A lot of those go bankrupt. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things like an, it, lowering the barrier of entry is on, on its surface a good thing. Right. So, for example, uh, you know, people can self-publish books now. They don't have to go through traditional publishers. Gatekeepers are, are gone. But it also, of course, means that the long tail of books there's no filter for them. So most of them are going to be terrible. So the, yeah. the you know, the audience person has to have some sort of way to select the actual ones that are, that are good. And you kind of see that the same thing happens in crypto. If you can, if you can issue a security directly to the public for, you know, fairly low cost of capital, right. it means the long tail of these cryptos are going to be anything really, you know, scams, frauds, you know, just like things like that. And, and a very tiny hit rate of something that's actually interesting. Uh, and I think you're going to see the same thing with, with SPACs because basically it's companies in many cases that were not really good enough to have an IPO, but that still came public. So it's kind of like any, any sort of, you know, speculative environment like that is going to have a very high failure rate. And that, it's kind of heavily based on that, that near zero cost of capital environment. Yeah, but we need those businesses to go bust. I mean, I was talking about with Silicon Valley Bank, how most of their depositors were these tech companies. And I kind of went off on a tangent on one of my videos and I said that a lot of these tech companies are completely unprofitable that are just incinerating cash. They need to look themselves in the mirror in these higher interest rate environments and, and just admit that, hey, I guess I am the malinvestment. Yeah. And it's one of those things, at least at that scale, you know, it's like some businesses might not make sense at a certain scale, but if they were a more niche business and priced differently, then, you know, maybe there's a business there. Uh, same thing with some of these SaaS companies, you know, software as a service. I mean, it's obviously a, a lot of these companies are providing something interesting. It's just that their their estimated total adjustable market is often, you know, off by some significant margin because they're they're not pricing it properly. They're not they're, they're kind of, a, you know, not really focusing on having to do profit because they're able to sell so much equity. Uh, right. And so it's it's either that some of them, you know, obviously some of them, the long tail of the really bad ones wouldn't even exist. Uh, but even some of the better ones, the actual size of the market they're going after is maybe not as big as they thought. And some of their advantages over their existing competitors are maybe not as wide as they thought because the existing competitors are actually trying to make a profit and not rely on selling equity. Whereas if you're in that window where you're able to sell tons of inflated equity, it feels like you're catching up faster than you really are. Yeah, so we've obviously seen the tide go out. We've seen some entities that were definitely swimming naked, but I don't think we've seen the tide go all the way out, especially if you're 
putting any emphasis on the yield curve. So how much farther do you think it will go out? What do you think the next uh, industry is that's going to be most susceptible? So I still think, I, I think a lot of the explosive part is out. I think now it's a long grind because you can, you can correct them both, you know, uh, either in price or in time. So something can just kind of go sideways for a very long period of time and therefore lose, lose value in terms of percent of the market, percent of the money supply, you know, uh, inflation adjusted terms, however you want to measure it, something can just go sideways for five years and a big, you know, 30% choppy band. And so I, th I think there are probably a lot of things that are going to go that route. Um, you know, in terms of, of, of crashing, I, you know, I think food delivery, I, I think that total adjustable market is inflated because of some of the stuff I think, um, you know, commercial real estate, that's, you know, I'm not original to say that a lot of people are concerned about that area. And it, the, the things that, that these areas have in common is they're either highly leveraged, uh, for mm -hmm. obvious reasons, something is very indebted. If, if there's any, there's, you know, there's very little margin of safety when something's very highly indebted. Uh, but then I, ironically, on the other side of that. If something is entirely based on inflated equity, which is what we right. just talked about, where you can be debt free, but if your entire business model is relying on being unprofitable and always selling more and more shares, uh, you're kind of in the same boat. And an example of that is actually back um, in the 2014, 2015, like oil price drop when the midstream sector blew up. Um, you know, if you look at some of those businesses, their revenues actually didn't drop by much. In many cases, even their profits didn't drop by much. If you look at some of the, the bigger ones, um, but they still got crushed. And the reason was that they, they were using kind of that Ponzi finance model, right? So if you look at, say, Kinder Morgan, you know, their, their actual fundamental business was not very heavily impaired during that whole period. I mean, it was somewhat, but it wasn't, it wasn't like what you'd expect when you look at the stock price or their dividend. It was that they were so reliant on constantly issuing debt, constantly issuing mm -hmm. equity, uh, that as soon as that dried up, uh, that the the relatively modest contraction in the underlying business resulted in a much larger contraction in the in the finances of the right. business. And they had to, they had to cut their dividend. They had to sell off some assets. They had to restructure and get back down to actually a more sustainable business. And I think you're going to have to see that in a lot of these industries still that they're still unprofitable. Uh, you know, I think they're still going to have this this long grind of of just bad returns. Yeah, I was talking to Patrick Serezna the other day about you know he's more of a trader. And I asked him what he's looking for as far as signals that would prompt him to go ahead and short the S&P by buying puts or whatever. And he said one of the key components is you've got to look at when the yield curve is no longer inverted. you got to look at when the Fed starts dropping rates because usually once they start dropping, the market doesn't rip higher. It usually has far more downside uh, before it starts to make that V-shaped recovery. Uh, but another thing he said is corporate profits starting to really take a hit and he said he expects corporate profits for um I'm trying to think exactly what he said i think for march and april to maybe remain strong but he said the next corporate uh profit season or reporting season he said look out for those pro for those profits to start going down and that could be another red flag or another signal that those traders out there might want to think about going short the S&P. At least that was his thought process. What is your view on that? So I think, that, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I do think corporate profitability is pressured. Um, the I think the one challenging aspect is that in a more inflationary environment, um, the 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 fact that nominal revenue can still be growing um, yeah, right, can be tricky. Right. And I actually, I did an analysis a while ago. It's it probably like six months or more ago. I look back over the past 100 years at, at all the inflationary spikes we've had, and I looked at what corporate earnings were doing during that time. Um, and, you know, more often than not, when you had a big inflation spike, usually um, earnings were kind of sideways, um, which is which is in nominal terms. Yes, huh, okay. uh, which is which is not good in real terms. Uh, right. Basically, it, it shows that their you know, their costs are going um, up as quickly or more quickly than their um, top line. And of course, that was a, there was a range there. Sometimes earnings did did better. Sometimes they did worse. But generally, you didn't have like large drops in earnings. Um, and so that that's the challenging environment where, I, again, I think you can kind of have a period of flat earnings for a period of time. You can get a mild contraction in earnings. Um, obviously, you know, there are certain things that could get bad enough to actually give you a big drop in earnings, but that would be outside of my base case. It, it's that, you know, I think that the way of looking at it is that earnings are not likely going to be positive. 
um, and we'll you know we'll see as more data points come in and what policymakers are doing you know how negative we're, we're talking about are we talking about sideways we're we talking about down are we talking about you know mildly positive in nominal terms but negative in real terms there's a bunch of ways to look at it, but i think that they're near the top end of their profit margin range that they've already rolled over from that perspective and i i still think we're going to be in a lackluster environment for corporate corporate earnings um and that can you know if you look at things like the s p 500 to gold ratio uh, you know, that's been showing signs of, of kind of structurally rolling over. If you look at some of those bigger charts, like month, monthly charts or quarterly charts, um, because basically you're, you're kind of looking at like a, say, a hard money metric for something that's very dependent on profitability, very dependent on, you know, cheap labor, uh, globalization, all these variables, all these efficiencies. And if any, if any percentage of them are challenged, you know, either because of U.S.-China tensions or, um, you know, shortages of labor domestically or, uh, you know, inflationary material prices in some cases. There's all sorts of factors that can influence different industries. Yeah, that's like my exact view of the housing market, that basically it could go sideways and it, it most likely will go sideways, maybe down a little bit in nominal terms, depending on how a recession plays out, how significant it is. But even if it goes sideways for the next five years, if on average you've got five, six, seven percent inflation uh, compounded over five years, that's a big number as far as a decline in real terms. Yeah, I agree, and I, that's how I'm viewing it. And you cover real estate more closely than I do, but um, looking at certain linear markets or just nationwide averages, uh, that's generally how I see it as well. If you if you go back, you know, again over 100 years of data, looking at say like uh, Robert Schiller's data, for example, mm. on housing. You know, there's only really been two very, very large drops nationwide in terms of housing prices, and that was the Great Recession and before that, the Great Depression. Those are the big, like, say, double-digit drops in nationwide averages, yeah. basically big disinflationary or outright deflationary, you know, debt crises. Um, but now, because we're in a more inflationary uh, period, um, because a lot of people locked in and don't want to sell, uh, things like that, you know, when I look at at least one of some of the more linear markets, maybe outside of some of the, you know, the bubbly markets from, from whatever peak they were at. But if I look at a linear market, I think, you know, a lot of these look like they're kind of setting up for a multi-year choppy period. Could go a little lower, could grind up a little higher, but the, but the inflation adjusted uh, results are unlikely to be good for, for, you know, quite a while. Yeah, I always say that the prices need to get back down to where they were in 2012. And because that's kind of our historic average adjusted for inflation going back to 1900. And everyone freaks out when I say that. Oh, that's impossible. There's no way it's going to happen. And I say, well, just think that one through. You know, if, if nominal prices go down by 10% in the next five years and we have, let's say, 7% inflation, you're there. You're, you're yeah. there. You know, and that's what people really don't realize. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at things either up or down. Right. Uh, it's always at the extremes. And there are, I mean, especially in inflationary environments, there are periods of just going choppy and nowhere. Um, and I think looking at emerging markets um, as like a historical um, note is useful because some of the things that developed markets are going through now have emerging market characteristics, especially mm. if we have another kind of commodity spike, for example. You know, let's say we try to ex accelerate out of this recession, we cause another inflationary problem. You know, uh, basically we have kind of sovereign debt bubble issues we have you know um, energy things we can't print so like you know all these kind of things that are more characteristic of emerging markets and when you look at them you know often their equities and their house prices don't do poorly in their local currency terms they do poorly in dollar terms they do poorly in gold terms you know things like that and i think it's a somewhat less extreme version that we're seeing in in developed countries where you know things might not do particularly poorly in dollar terms um, they might just go sideways in dollar terms, even though, you know, in terms of purchasing power, in terms of, you know, gold terms, whatever the case may be, they're actually doing quite, quite poorly. Yeah. So let's talk about that a bit. Let's talk about, uh, you know, you're someone and I've kind of ridden on your coattails here after you made this point, because it made a lot of sense to me that the 2020s will most likely be more like the 1940s uh, compared to the 1970s. And so let's go through that and then go through kind of what the trade deficits look like. And then let's go through kind of the rest of 2023, but then the, the bond market and um, you, you know, the bond market is very uh, interesting to me right now because 
when I listen to guys like Luke, you know, it totally makes sense that there's in the future, there's probably not going to be a lot of demand or there could be a setup where there's a lot less demand for treasuries, right? Especially relative to the amount of treasuries that the, that Janet Yellen is supplying. Uh, because I've looked at charts that show over the past uh, year and a half or so, really your only net buyer is U.S. retail. So if, if they go away, then you know who on earth is your net buyer there? And do interest rates skyrocket? But then on the same token, or on the other side of the coin, you've got the fact that uh, you know the front end of the curve, there's massive amounts of demand. And right now, as we speak, there's probably a lot of demand for the long end too, considering how the 10 years at 3.4 and Fed funds is call it at, at 5%. So it's weird. It's like I see this macro setup to where there could be a lot less demand for treasuries, but currently it seems like there's massive demand for treasuries. So I know it's about five questions into one, but uh, I guess why don't you start by outlining kind of the difference between the 1940s, 1970s, and what we might see today. Sure. So I'm finding that the I've been talking about this for a while that I think the 1940s are the closest analog we have. It's not, it's obviously not a perfect analog because a lot of things were different back then. But basically, if someone is completely unfamiliar with the macro environment of the 40s, um, they're kind of at a disadvantage and they're going to find more things to be unprecedented in this environment than they would be if they at least had that benchmark to compare it to. And so, you know, if we start at the 70s, back then, the inflation was largely driven by bank lending. Yeah, so this is key. Yeah, so most of the money creation was bank lending. And that was because the baby boomer generation was reaching their home buying years. Uh, and so you had kind of that, that peak early consumption period. And then you you, you add to it, obviously, um, you know, 1970 U.S. oil production peaked after like 100 years from the late 1800s all the way up to, to 1970. It was just almost always going up. But it structurally peaked for multiple decades until, you know, the shale revolution in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so we became more reliant on on imports, and obviously we ran into geopolitical conflicts and shortages from that. So we had kind of that combination of bank lending driven money supply growth, which was above trend, combined with you know real world shortages. And the fiscal situation was not helping. Uh, you know, you had the you had uh, going into that you had the Vietnam War, you had the guns and butter, you know, the the domestic Great Society programs. Um, so you did have fiscal deficits, but they were not very large as a percentage of GDP, and they were they were a smaller contributor to money supply growth than the bank lending was. Right. Uh, that was that was bank lending, and so, and also debts were very low as a percentage of GDP, both. Uh, you know, private debt was pretty low and and public debt got as low as 30 percent, uh, you know, federal debt, to GDP, because you had kind of a multi-decade period of, of, you know, some degree of financial oppression, basically yield spending half their time below inflation, uh, you know, very strong underlying growth. Uh, and so they, they, you know, from the 40s to the 70s, they got debt very low. And so when you you know, when they encountered the 70s, the policymaker tool was try to slow down money supply growth, uh, try to get back to positive real yields, which you could do because debt was so low, and then go out and try to solve some of the geopolitical issues to get oil flowing again and, and clear up some of the supply chain bottlenecks. So it was really a multi, multi-pronged attack uh, to try to solve that inflation problem. Whereas we look at the 40s, the inflation was uh, roughly the same magnitude uh, throughout the decade. It actually reached a higher year-over-year peak. Um, it wasn't quite as persistent. It came in like, these sharper waves and contractions. Um, but a lot of it was driven by f- uh, fiscal spending. Banks were not lending almost at all. And instead, because of the war effort um, and because of, you know some of the, the social uh, kind of dynamics of the time, there was very, very large fiscal spending. And, you know, we think of it as the war, but a lot of it was building manufacturing facilities, building energy facilities, getting commodity access. Um, and, you know, they, they also, you know, after during the early stages of the, the 20th century, right, there was that kind of growing divide between, say, communism over in, in Russia and then capitalism over in here. And there were kind of growing communist sympathies, uh, especially with, with kind of rough worker environments, industrialization, things like that. Yeah. And for example, after World War One, when veterans came back, they kind of just gave them a bus ticket and said, thanks for your service and, you know, sent them on their way, whereas they didn't want to repeat that in World War Two. They wanted to, you know, not have that kind of 
disgruntlement uh, in society. And so they also then used the money to put 8 million people into technical school and college, you know, the GI bills, and then set them up with subsidized mortgages and, and kind of all these ways to kind of try to build a middle class. And so this was a, a very large fiscal driven uh, inflationary environment. And so that was a huge increase in money supply, huge increase in inflation. And the problem was that debt to GDP was so high, you know, federal debt, that they couldn't afford super high interest rates. You'd have a debt spiral. And so they just held rates low anyway. They inflated a lot of the debt away. And that actually helped keep deficits lower than they otherwise would have been. The problem is if you have very large deficits, very high debt, and you have very high interest, you, you have a spiral. You just, you know, if, if you look at, say, like a, a junk rated company, you know, if they, if they have very, very high debt, if they have high, high interest on their debt and they're not very profitable, eventually they're going to go bankrupt. Um, or if they if they had the capability to print their own money, you know, they would not go bankrupt nominally, but they just they would hyperinflate their you know, their, their units. And so that was kind of the difference between the forties and the seventies. And the problem is that here in the 2020s, in many cases, we resemble the forties. So it's, it's not excessive bank lending over the past couple of years that triggered all this money supply growth and inflation. It was the large fiscal expenditure. And people often think of the stimulus checks and the childcare tax credits, but it was also, you know, the PPP loans that turn into grants, you know, and there's been studies on those that show, you know, something like two thirds of it, wasn't even used for paychecks really it just went to the bottom line of like wealthy wealthy business owners in many cases so they would just get like a half million dollar handout for example right. it also went to large corporations that often didn't really use it for for you know employees it just kind of goes to the corporate bottom line so kind of across the, the spectrum there's this very large period of money creation um and the problem is going forward due to kind of persistent military expenditures uh, and due to structural, just the way we've, we've done entitlements for, for decades now, uh, we have these large structural deficits going forward. And as you pointed out, not exactly a lot of balance sheet capacity to, to, to place them. And so I guess, go ahead. You know what I'm thinking, Lynn, as you're discussing the 1970s, do you think the reason M2 was able to increase so much due to bank lending and they didn't need that fiscal component is because going because we had so many decades that were inflationary and then we had kind of the middle class growing in or at least real wages i would assume getting higher in the 1950s and 60s going into the 1970s you have this environment where real wages had probably grown a lot and there was very little debt on the consumer balance sheet so there was a lot of balance sheet capacity for the consumer to take on all this debt that the banks were more than willing to provide. And then and that's that environment that's kind of that setup for that M2 money supply increasing, leading to a lot of inflation. Yeah, they went from relatively underfinanced to fully financed. So money yeah. supply growth is growing faster yeah. than, than than GDP. You kind of see that when you see a developing country kind of go up the the GDP per capita spectrum. You see, you know, very little banking access and then over time, they get more and more banking access. And so you actually have a pretty strong period of money supply growth. That was kind yeah. of what we went through in the and 70s. And then it's also, and that was kind of pre, um, you know, we didn't have that big burst of globalization yet. And so if there was more demand, uh, a lot of that would go into worker wages. There's also, uh, you kind of have these, you know, the, the stru power structure between capital and labor tends to have this pendulum effect where it goes back and forth. So, you know, going, you know, it, like we talked about before in the in the early 20th century, generally capital was was very well positioned. So, you know, there was not a lot of worker rights. There wasn't a lot of unionization, um, but there was kind of then pushback against that, you know, FDR, the the you know, all these kind of um, multiple decades. And so you got more unionization. It kind of gave labor more and more uh, power to, to collect more wages. Uh, but like most things, the, the obviously the pendulum goes too far um, and it got kind of oppressive in that sense. And so that's another thing that they did to try to combat inflation was they did union busting. They accelerated globalization. More things opened up. I mean, China kind of opened up uh, in the 90s. Obviously, you had the end of the you know, the Soviet Union as as it was. And so that opened up more pools of labor. Um, but yeah, basically in that kind of middle uh, 20th century period, you kind of had, you know, near the height of, of workers' ability to uh, collect more wages, which, which, which had that kind of cycle of inflation. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have 
with investment experts Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So now we're going into deglobalization, but we're also at a period, I think just in the last two weeks or month where bank lending has started to decline. And I've, I've, I've paid a lot of attention to this because M2 and M1 have been declining for about a year. You'd better than I would. And a lot of people thought that, that, okay, that means that the consumer balance sheet is, is decreasing. But when you actually scratch beneath the surface, you see that a lot of that is probably money market fund. There's, there's trading savings for money market fund and maybe trading savings for treasuries which go into the TGA or used to pay off the Fed or something like that. So it's taken out of M1 and M2. But what I was really looking at, hyper-focused on, is if M1 continues to go down, while at the same time bank lending goes down, now all of a sudden it may mean that they're not trading one asset for the other, but that their balance sheet is actually shrinking. So if that is true, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And then if you agree with that, or maybe you have some different insights, how would that play into kind of this inflation, deflation, disinflation debate right now for the rest of 2023? Yeah, so I think I think you described it in, a, in an accurate way. Uh, you know, a lot of that was trade was trading one type of money for another type of money, yeah. more or less. Um, also, obviously, quantitative tightening was an element. Uh, you know, if if you do QE or QT, you know, with banks, um, it doesn't really have much of an impact on broad money. But if you end up buying or selling assets to non-banks, you know, even if you're just using banks as an intermediary, if, you, if the ultimate kind of source that you're buying or selling from is a non-bank yep. entity, uh, that that you know that does impact um, you know deposits, broad money supply, that kind of thing. So the combination of quantitative tightening and the shift in the in the types of cash equivalents that people are holding. Um, has Im- impacted that while bank lending was still reasonably strong. Um, but as you point out, now that we're, you know, now that we're seeing signs of bank lending contraction, in many cases out of necessities, because, mm. you know, for the first time in a while, small banks are generally reserve constrained. Um, you know, they, they, they need certain liquidity levels. They're back to very, very low cash levels as a percentage of their assets, as a percentage of their deposits, more so than large banks are. Uh, and so they're really restricted in the type of lending they can do now. And they're obviously more risk averse. Um, and so all of that is now, I think it continues to be disinflationary. Um, so, you know, my, a lot of people often ask, you know, how long until they get back to 2% inflation? Whereas for me, that's, that's the less interesting in question than whether or not the underlying causes of inflation are structurally solved or not. Because, you know, if you go back to either the 70s or the, the, the 40s, uh, you know, inflation came in waves. It, it would go to very high levels and then there'd be a period of uh, pushback. It could be because they did price and wage controls. It could be because they temporarily reduced the fiscal taps. It could be because the central bank was fighting back. There's all, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why you get those pullbacks and disinflation. Um, and I think we're in one of those now, obviously. Um, and I want to point out too, the 1940s was far more extreme than the 1970s. Yeah. yeah you go from double digit inflation down to, to literally negative inflation to double digits again, and then down yep. to negative again, and then up to like 9%, and then down to negative again. And the, the average for the decade, it was on the same ballpark as the 70s, but it was at a very extreme level. And you know the, the highest peak year of year was something like 19%, which actually exceeded the highest peak year of year in the 70s. Uh, but unlike the 70s, there were those periods of, of deflation. Uh, and so you know, there's still wild cards, obviously, from What's going to happen with the oil price, OPEC, China, that kind of thing? Because that can that can catch us off. That, that's why you know going back to the emerging market comparison, you can have recessions that are still inflationary in emerging markets because you know they have these dynamics that they can't fully control. 
And, you know, I think that we could encounter periods like that um, here in the U.S. or Europe where we have external shocks, uh, supply side shocks that, say, give us inflation despite slow or negative economic growth. Now, right now, oil price is still in a, in a pretty attractive band. And we have all these other things that are contracting. So I think it still looks uh, disinflationary for a period of time due to some of those forces you mentioned. Why do you think OPEC cut? Do you think they cut because they see demand declining or just to stick it to the Biden administration to create inflation? What is your view? My read's a bit of both, but I'm I'm relying on on other, you know, there's geopolitical experts, there's reporting from the Financial Times, for example, uh, that that try to cover some of the behind the scenes reasons for that. Uh, so it's not fully clear. But, you know, what is clear is that, you know, Saudi Arabia has been moving a little bit eastward in terms right. of its, its connections. Uh, you know, we'll see to what extent or how persistent that is. But that, that's been a pretty clear trend. Um, and, you know, we've we the U.S. wanted to. Um, you know, take the edge off oil prices by reducing the SPR. Uh, but when oil prices got cheap, they they didn't exactly take initiative to you know refill the SPR. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and I think when you when you then you add softening uh, demand in in the United States, I think Saudi Arabia was like, well, why not? Why not cut a little bit and you know get the price back up and. You know, if demand comes in softer than we thought, at least we already did a cut, uh, or at least you know we'll gain more le- leverage with Washington and, and see where that goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next topic that I well before we get to that because that's going to be a big topic. What do you think about demand for Treasuries? Because you know Luke's argument well, and it makes a lot of sense. And like I said, when I look at a chart showing that over the last year and a half, the only net buyer of Treasuries has been retail. But then you rec- try to reconcile that with the front end just having massive demand and then the 10-year and 30-year being so far under Fed funds. Where do you think – Does it? am I right to assume that right now there's a lot of demand for treasuries? Let's start with that. And then if so, you know, where do you see that in a year or two? Could we get to a point where we go from a lot of demand to almost no demand? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of demand for the short end of the curve. That that much is clear. Uh, there's a shortage, um, which is the you know I, I did compare this incident somewhat to the September 2019 repo spike because you had a similar period of of bank cash running down to pretty low levels. But the main difference there was that back then there was an oversupply of T bills, uh, whereas here, if anything, you have the opposite problem. You have undersupply of T bills. So that yeah, there's there's virtually no shortage of demand for T bills. And if the federal government were to uh, shorten its average debt duration and issue a ton of T-bills, you know, assuming it gets the debt something resolved one way or another and it's able to issue its debt again. If it really just kind of focused on the front end of the curve, they would probably have no problems, you know, issuing tons of of that, sucking money out of reverse yeah. repos. Yeah, Janet Yellen yeah. actually talked about that. I remember she called it like a debt buyback or something like that. Yeah, you can do things like that. Um, you know, I think the long end is more fl- is more fluctuating. So, you know, s- some months there's pretty good demand for it. Other times there's not. And, you know, the, the bigger problem is, as you pointed out, that retail has really been the, the buyer there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, banks are unable to really buy uh, when, when their deposit base is flat to down. Um, and they're already actually pretty cash constrained. Uh, you know, the, the cash as a percentage of their assets is, is back down to where it was in 2000. Uh, 19, well, at least for small banks and for large banks, it's not much higher than that. Um, so, you know, they're not exactly the big buyers that they were. Um, right now, they're net sellers. Um, and if you look globally at, at dollar demand, you know, a lot of people look at the, obviously the headlines of, you know, bricks, bricks bucks or political yeah. uh, <laughs> stuff. But the, the, the more tactical thing is dollar strength. Generally, when you have a very strong dollar, uh, somewhat un- unintuitively, you get less foreign demand for treasuries uh, because, if anything, you know they're they're defending their currencies. They might even be selling treasuries to get dollars or to, oh, to yeah. backstop their own currency. So you actually see a pretty strong inverse correlation where um, they're not really accumulating treasuries when when the dollar is strong, and only when the dollar takes a pretty big dip um, do you start to see you know reserve accumulation again and more um, dollar increases. So as, as the dollar has been in this in this pretty strong band, you know really since is that you know 2014 2015 timeframe, you've not seen a lot of of you know dollar uh, you know treasury accumulation by the foreign official sector and only you know modest amounts by the foreign private sector. 
and it, it kind of ebbs and flows with the dollar strength along the way. And then when you zoom out and look more geopolitically, you know, China's already declared that it's, it's you know, ever since they launched the Belt and Road Initiative, that that's, that's basically where they want to put their dollars. They don't want to put them into treasuries. They want to put them into, into loans. Um, you see uh, some degree of reserve diversification. Uh, you see kind of renewed gold demand, um, basically just that kind of the, the geopolitical aspects that are somewhat different than that than that tactical cycle. So when you take banks out of the equation and when you kind of take the foreign sector out of the equation, it really only leads to domestic non-banks and they yeah. obviously only have so much domestic uh, but also you know, but also too Lynn, I would argue that the reason that they they traded those savings for treasuries was because the the delta between what they're getting on that savings account and fed funds was so extreme due to quantitative easing. But right now, I mean, what you're saying is that banks are having to start to compete for deposits again, which means they're going to be paying more and more and more and more for those deposits, which most likely means that the, the delta between what they're getting paid in a bank and what they can get in a T-bill or, or a treasury tenure, let's say, really starts to decrease to a point where it might be non-existent. If you combine that with the fact that the Fed may, may be lowering rates to decrease that, uh, that delta again, then you may go into this uh, situation where the whole incentive for them to trade savings for treasuries is no longer there. Yeah, I think that's the long-term story. I think you know the delta is still pretty wide. Yeah. So there's still a pretty big gap between now and then. If you look back at prior tightening cycles, it's interesting because deposits never really move much in the prior cycles. You know, you'd have. Um, yeah, but that's because there's no QE because the 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 savings rates would go up with the Fed funds. Well, yes, but I'm saying that even if you look at, say, bank rates, so bank, um, you know, bank deposit rates, they wouldn't, on average, move. You'd have some outliers move, but the average bank rate wouldn't move much. And I think a lot of it was that it was temporary. You know, a lot of people don't look at their at their bank and and shop around. You know, there's high switching costs. Um, they they just don't really kind of, um, you know, quickly shift to other types of assets. Whereas in this time, the perception that they're going to be higher for longer. And uh, the recent perceptions around bank safety has led to more of an exodus. Uh, and so now this time there's more of an incentive to have that bank deposit rate catch up. Uh, and and if you know if you asked me a few months ago, I would have expected it to be slower. Um, but obviously these some of these recent things, the weaker banks, uh, as well as you know the, the perception that it's going to be with us for longer is is you know accelerating that trend compared to prior hiking cycles. So yeah, if that if that gap closes to a significant degree, um, then that, I think that some of that retail bid for T-bills diminishes. Yeah, or yeah, or the long end. And you know what I was referring to, Lynn, is I did a whiteboard video the other day where I was actually researching this topic. And I saw that for checking accounts, it seemed like there wasn't a real strong correlation between the amount banks were paying on checking deposits and Fed funds. But when I looked at savings deposits, that's where the, it, it the savings deposit rate that banks were paying was was very consistent with Fed funds. In fact, right off the top of my head, I remember a chart I got. And I'll send it to you later. Uh, I think it was from J.P. Morgan. Josh, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but it showed going back to like the late '90s what a hundred thousand dollars in a savings account would get you as far as as annual interest compared to the stated CPI. And like, I remember 2006 specifically, because you were getting like $6,000 annually to have $100,000 in savings. And the CPI was like, I, I don't know, it was, you know, 3%. So you had a, a, a very good real return. But then when they did QE, that savings rate just dropped straight down to like 25 basis points or something like that. So anyway, uh, I'll have to show you those charts uh, because... You know, my concern, like I said, is that okay, they that delta decreases, and now all of a sudden there, there's no incentive. Then who's your buyer? And you combine that with the fact that although we've had an inverted yield curve, the curve for banks that they care about, you know, their lending cost has been very, very low. So their curve has actually been steep. You know what I mean? So yes. what happens when their curve actually inverts? Yeah, that's going to be negative for for bank capital, uh, negative for bank lending, and it's you know that the, how how much it impacts a bank will depend very much on the type of bank. I mean, I'm I'm not bear, I'm not bullish on the long tail of small and medium banks. Um, the some the certain banks I like are generally the larger banks. Um, 
uh, and so you know there, there's still areas that are interesting. But for the most part, I, I think banks are going to be highly pressured by that because even if their deposit rate just goes up to two or three percent, um, yeah. that already that that cuts off a lot of their their net interest margin compared to the fact that they're holding a lot of these longer duration assets that are at one and a half two percent yields. Uh, now they are getting very high rates from their you know their 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 reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, so their sources of capital and any sort of new loans or new securities are are you know paying pretty well. But they have this this kind of long like a large basket of these legacy longer duration assets. And you know when we talk about the Fed hiking cycle. One of the challenges is just how quickly they did it. Like if you if you if you do it over a period of time and some of those older bonds can mature and get reinvested at higher rates and things like that, it gives banks time to have their assets and their liabilities go up together. Right. If you you know if you if you raise rates at a record pace, I mean it's you know the fastest hiking cycle in absolute terms since the 70s, but in percentage terms, it's the fastest ever, and that puts quite a bit of pressure on on these banks that have these longer duration assets. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's talk about de-dollarization. That's a super hot topic right now. What are your views? Uh, so, it's not the most like headline-inducing uh, answer, but I'm I'm somewhere in the middle, and, <laughs> and it's you know on one end of the spectrum, you see basically people say, "Oh, this is the end of the dollar. This is you know it's all over now. It's going to be like you know BRICS currency, yuan, whatever the case may be." Um, you know the problem with that is many people pointed out that these headlines have been around for like two decades. Everyone's every time there's kind of an interesting currency deal. You always have these like magazine covers, like end of the dollar, and this is it, and like you know this is this is you know the, the end of everything. So, yeah, would you hear Tucker Carlson come out and talk about it the other night on Fox News? I saw, so I, I saw that CNN mentioned it. I saw that Fox had a segment on it. I, I did think I see that 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 Tucker also did. So I, I guess Fox now has had two different uh, segments talking about it. Yeah, I, I, um, I tweeted out that the only thing we need now is to see Matt Damon, Tom Brady. And Jim Cramer talk about it, and then you know you really got to buy the dollar. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm definitely going to fade that extreme. Uh, yeah. Anything that's like the idea that things are going to move very quickly, things like that. On the other hand, I'm also fading the idea that the people that are basically saying, "Oh, nothing's changed. We've seen these headlines before. It's totally, it's totally the same as it's always been," because there, there obviously have been certain accelerations that that make this this particular cycle different than prior cycles. Yep. Uh, these things do tend to go, and you know, it's. it's so if you look at, for example, obviously the war has been in, in a large impact. The fact that you know Russia's reserves could be frozen, uh, and you know they already had ahead of that de-dollarized, but they didn't seem to you know expect it, that their also their euro assets would be frozen. I guess they didn't think that that Europe had the guts to do that, given how much natural gas exposure um, they had to Russia. Um, so you know basically when you when countries look around and say, wait a second, is that maybe that's not as money as we thought it was? It's more permissioned money. Maybe we should diversify. Um, so you know, there are things that are changed. Also, the sheer size of China. Uh, you know, people are talking about like you know headlines from 2004 or headlines from like you know 2008 or whatever of the of these kind of attempts at de-dollarization. You know, China is is rivaling the U.S. in terms of economic size now in many categories. I mean, they're the largest commodity importer. Uh, you know, they generate more electricity, they have more skyscrapers, they're the largest trading partner with the majority of countries in the world, which, mm. you know, two decades ago used to be the United States. Uh, there's only a handful of metrics where the United States is still firmly, you know, a, a larger economic presence. I mean, we're, we're still larger, obviously, deep water Navy presence. Um, you know, we have a we, we still, have, uh, you know, uh, you know, obviously a larger um, capital markets, larger, a bunch of things like that. But now there's kind of two economies that depending on what you're looking at, are, are roughly the same size. And in some areas, one's bigger, in other areas, the other one's bigger. Um, and so there's clearly a, a gravitational force that gives them some degree of rivalry. Now, they're not, much like the dollar is not really big enough to kind of serve the whole world anymore. It's also true that China is not really big enough to serve, serve the whole world. They have demographics issues. Uh, you know, their their uh, capital accounts aren't even open. Um, you know, they don't exactly have a very um, a strong um, like reputation globally. Uh, you know, if if you go to a, a you know a street in a, a random city, they want dollars, not yuan. Um, yeah. So even though there's been de-dollarization to some extent around the margins at the central bank level, it's not really on the public level. Uh, at least not yet. Uh, and so I, you know, I think the way that we're pointing towards is obviously some degree of, of multipolar um, 
like a multipolar world where reserves are, are more diversified, payment channels are more diversified. There's obviously better technology now than there was 10 years ago. Uh, they're kind of developing these, you know, interlocking CBDCs that can allow, you know, uh, more decentralized exchange, things like that, um, as well as gold, obviously, is kind of the, the neutral force. And so with, with the combination of all these technologies, even if the dollar is still the unit of account for a lot of things mm-hmm. um, out of network effects and convenience, just the sheer fact that you're diversifying both reserves and payment rails uh, changes things quite a bit. Yeah, very well said. I've, I, the way I've tried to describe it on my channel is going through a thought experiment of what do you think the headlines would have been in the 1920s? Or if we had social media back then, you know, what do you think people would have been saying about the British pound on Twitter? Uh, they, yeah. they probably would have been pointing out the exact same things. And I'm sure the exact same things were happening because that's when the United States economy was getting to the same size as the, as the, the UK. And, uh, you know, that's when those businesses started to want to hold more and more dollars because they're doing more and more business with us. And but the reserve currency status wasn't formalized until 1944. So it's just that that transition. It definitely takes place, but it just takes place over a long period of time. Yeah, and, and two points I'll add to that. One is that when we go back to my 1940s comparison, one of the key differences is that back then the U.S. had a structural trade surplus. We were the rising power. We were the industrial base. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and whereas the U.K. had a structural trade deficit as the existing world world reserve currency, the existing incumbent, um, they they had that you know kind of um, you know uh, more structural trade deficit. So in many ways. The United States looks like the UK did really from the 1940s. Mm. Um, and, you know, the second factor I'd like to point out is that having one country's currency be the reserve currency of the world is is actually quite an anomaly. So a lot of people, they, they see a chart of like, you know, the reserve currency changing every 90 years on average. You know, they see yeah. okay, before, it was the US and before then it was the UK and before then it was Netherlands and before then it was, you know, Spain, whatever the chart goes. You know, the, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that it's like before the U.S. it was like gold, and before then it was like gold, and before then it was gold, and it's like all the different flavors <laughs> of gold or gold yeah, and silver, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know you'd have kind of promises to pay for gold, uh, and also when they talk about reserve currency of the world, they often meant reserve currency of Europe. Um, you know they weren't. It wasn't you know until you got to the U.K. You didn't really have a truly global reserve currency. Hmm, you know right. it wasn't. It wasn't like you know um, you know the the spain or netherlands like their currency was like the, the dominant currency for like china for example if you go back that far and so you know this this kind of period ever since Bretton woods where you know the world was devastated the united states was like over 40 percent of global gdp uh we had almost all the gold uh we had uh, you know, our our land mass was almost entirely untouched by the war whereas everybody else winners and losers were devastated uh we really had you know all the cards we had a, a chessboard full of queens and you know we could kind of set all the rules uh whereas just just a return to normalcy um brings us out of that anomaly we've, we've had kind of this you know better part of a century of that that anomaly slowly kind of returning back to a more normal environment china's kind of you know if you go back long enough china was a very large percentage of world gdp so was india uh and they went through a period you know during colonization due to a bunch of factors they they you know they had an unusually small share and in many cases, they're just kind of returning back to the general percentages that they, that they always used to have. And I think we're just kind of returning back to a more diversified baseline economically. And I think that's going to eventually result in more diversified currency exposure as well. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So how does gold play into that? How does Bitcoin play into that? Well, so gold ever, you know, if you look back from the 70s until 2008, uh, the you know, central bank holdings of gold were generally diminishing. Um, and, and the do- the treasury, the dollar was taking the center stage there. Um, ever since 2009, you've had like a V-shaped recovery uh, in gold tonnage owned by central banks. Okay. Uh, we kind of we kind of you know hit peak like you know disregard for gold and going into dollars. I think a lot of countries are like wait a second, maybe the dollar is not quite as you know bulletproof as we thought it was. Maybe we want to you know have self custody of something that's a little bit more inflation resistant, more scarce. We fully control it. Um, obviously, you had certain countries spearhead that more than others, like Russia. They had more of an incentive to want to have their own gold uh, for obvious reasons. 
Um, and so ever since 2009, we, the, the gold's been kind of reasserting somewhat its place in, in global reserves because it's the one type of money that they can hold in large amounts. They, they can avoid counterparty risk. And of course, the problem is that it, you know, it's slow and clunky to settle. Uh, but you know, for a certain percentage of their reserves, it makes quite a bit of sense, uh, and it's it's neutral money. So I think you know, as all these other payment arrangements kind of get built, and and you know, we'll see where that goes. Gold continues to be one of the most uh, reliable things that they have. Uh, for Bitcoin, the problem is that it's it's not big enough yet. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. when you talk about the size of global oil trade alone, let alone global trade for all goods and services. If you're trying to figure out what unit of account, what settlement medium uh, that you want to to do that in, um, you know, Bitcoin is is hundreds of billions of dollars in market capitalization, you know, trillions of dollars in in annual uh, transfer volume, uh, whereas the the sheer scale you need is many many trillions. It's still right. small enough that like a you know a corporation or a very you know a billionaire can move the price for periods of time, uh, and so I think you need a, a higher level of adoption and depth of liquidity before that would be interesting on the like the sovereign settlement and reserve level. Um, also, if you had higher adoption, uh, you probably would have less volatility, um, and if you kind of reach the the upper end of the total addressable market. You know, it, it would it would go up and down more slowly, and therefore you'd have less leverage, less incentive to build leverage on top of it. Uh, kind of like how you know, uh, you know, a lot of people don't go like super levered long gold uh, mm -hmm. in the way that some people went super levered long, say Bitcoin. And so I think as that settles and as that gets kind of a, a larger liquidity, larger adoption, that could become more interesting to central banks over time. I would expect it to. Uh, but right now it's still early and a lot of central bankers face career risk. I mean, if they're the one that, you know, convinces people to put a little bit of Bitcoin on their balance sheet and then it has one of its like 80 percent drawdowns, you know, they're fired. Yeah, so, right, you know, right. it, it's still early for that. But I think that that actually is a long term thing because it opens up not only that independent uh, reserve asset, but also the independent ability to, to send or receive money, uh, you know, to any other entity with an Internet connection. Yeah, I've tried to think through that that chicken or egg type issue with Bitcoin is you need the adoption to decrease the vol, but you need the vol to go down to increase adoption. I, I'm try, I try to figure out how you could increase that adoption while at the same time the vol was kind of what we've seen. I, I guess it, the answer is it just happens very slowly. I think that's it. I think it's time. I, I think you yeah. just, you know, we, it's gone through, you know, four plus cycles now. I think it's probably going to keep going through cycles um, where, you know, e each time you get a kind of a higher high and a higher low. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's basically it. it, it Right now, self-selects, uh, especially during bear markets, for people that don't mind the volatility, that they say, "Okay, here's here's my assets, and this this percentage of my assets, I'm willing to put into something for five, ten years, right. and not worry about the volatility." That's really the only people that can, you know, make use of it for that purpose. There's other people that are using it to get in and out of, say, stable coins and using it for payment rails and using it as part of their assets. Um, but I think that over time, it basically it's until it reaches more people. And that's kind of a slow process. That's how it goes. And that's also why it's different than other types of technologies. So when you see, like, say, smartphone adoption, uh, you have this smooth, rapid growth curve. And that's because it's not a monetary adoption. There's no leverage. It's not like, you know, you go levered long a, you know, an, an iPhone, like you get your first smartphone. You know, you never go, you never go back. You never say, OK, I'm out of the smartphone thing. Uh, I was too levered in it. And I'm going back to flip phones. And then, you know, whereas something like Bitcoin, you get adoption during a bull market, they get euphoric and then they go buy dog money and then they get wrecked. And then they're like, I'm done with all that. And then they, you know, wait, they wait three years, four years and it has another bull run and like, wait a second, that's not dead. And then they get back into it. And so it's, it's de de definitely going to be a longer and messier adoption curve to yeah. whatever extent it eventually goes compared to something like electricity, radios, smartphones. Uh, you just can't really adopt monetary technology with the same type of smoothness. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So for the rest of 2023, what do you think are your top three? I don't want to say predictions because that's tough, but the, the top three things that you are focusing on 
for the rest of 2023? Sure. I would say the, the number one thing I'm focusing on is the liquidity environment. And so, you know, during 2022, the Federal Reserve was doing their quantitative tightening. So they were reducing their balance sheet. But, um, you know, especially in the second half of the year, this was somewhat offset by the Treasury General account, which was emptying its cash reserves right. back into the market. Right. And, you know, when you think of it, it's unintuitive because when the Treasury General account is, is increasing, that's actually negative for liquidity. And when it's when it's shrinking, that's actually positive for liquidity. And you can think of that as basically an unproductive void. When 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 they issue when they either tax more or they issue more bonds at a quicker rate than they're spending, they pull mm -hmm. money into this void. And that's money that's sucked out of the financial system and it's not yet redeployed uh, into the financial system. So it's in that void. And the bigger that void is, that's kind of negative for liquidity. Whereas you know, when they hit a debt ceiling like they have now, they're unable to issue new debt. Taxes are only coming in so quickly. And so they're, they're spending more than they're bringing in. And so they're drawing down that treasury general account, which is actually pro-liquidity. It's going back into the financial system and it's offsetting, you know, quite a bit of the quantitative tightening that we've seen over the past period of time. And right now it's already pretty low. It's under 200 billion and it, it's had a multi hundred billion drawdown just in the past six months. Right. And, you know, when they reach a debt ceiling, you know, maybe early summer, I mean, we'll see what happens with, with, you know, obviously certain tax revenues are unpredictable. Um, there's a lot of factors that can influence it, but you know, one way or another, when they eventually solve the debt ceiling and they want to refill their treasury general account from will roughly be zero uh, back up to their, you know, presumably they're targeting half a trillion. That's kind of their baseline that they go for now. You'd have basically Federal Reserve quantitative tightening alongside Treasury general account also filling up, which is negative for liquidity. And I think that's where, you know, all these concerns around recession and liquidity really come to a head because if the Fed blinks and the Fed's, you know, if, if the Treasury tries to fill up and cause a liquidity problem, and the Fed has to end quantitative tightening and, and maybe even do QE or, or just at least be neutral, um, that, that's kind of a regime change. That's a, a change in, in terms of monetary policy. So I, I think we have to, that's like a, a set of landmines that we have to navigate and be aware of this year. Uh, and you know, rather than try to predict exactly how it's going to go, instead what I'm mainly doing is emphasizing uh, that particular chain of events to look out for that okay. you know that, that basically whatever this year shows it's likely not going to be linear it's likely going to be periods of volatility because you're not going to have that that same kind of structural force of fed balance sheet down treasury general account down instead these are going to kind of uh, run into each other uh rough in the middle of the year and we'll see how that goes yeah um, then you got the variable of reverse repo too Exactly. And, and then, yeah, then the question was, then the question is, does when the treasury wants to refill their cash account, do they issue a lot of uh, short duration T-bills to try to suck money out of the reverse repos? In right. which case, they, they actually might be able to refill without causing a problem. On the other hand, if they issue a lot of normal duration, that's where they could you know, cause quite a bit of liquidity problems because it likely mm -hmm. wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be coming out of reverse repos. Uh, and so basically, that's a set of human decisions we have to look out for. How, how's the Fed and the Treasury going to interact over the next six, 12 months uh, is probably the single biggest thing I'm watching. Um, number two is I'm looking at commodity uh, and especially energy prices to see if oil can stay over some of its uh, recent lows, if it can start making higher highs. Um, I'm looking also at things like Chinese international flight levels. Mm. Um, so, you know, when China opens, it doesn't open all at once. Right. Um, you know, domestic flights came online quicker. There was a, a lag for international flights. I've seen a lot of reasons for it. Some people point out that, I mean, a lot of pilot licenses like expired. Um, a lot of that infrastructure doesn't just turn on a dime. Um, there's also, you know, for a period of time, they were, you know, they had a COVID wave going through their, um, you know, it's kind of like pulling a bandaid off when you, when you reopen after a long period of, of suppression, it was going through the population. You had a lot of countries, you know, would, you know, they're pretty open with their borders, but not to mainland China because they were kind of the exception at the moment. Um, so there are a bunch of factors that I think take time for these international flights to ramp up. And we're seeing in, in data that it is ramping up, just, just not as quickly as domestic flights did. And so that that's like one of many um, oil demand factors uh, mm. that I think are worth keeping an eye on. So uh, I am watching things out of China. I'm watching uh, oil price for, for technical signals and support signals. 
to see how much of a variable that's going to be on inflation. Because as we discussed earlier, uh, I generally think that there are still a number of disinflationary forces in the economy for at least a period of time before we get back to a period of inflation. But the big wild card and, and one of the factors that contributes to my long-term inflationary thesis is that I eventually expect higher oil prices. And I don't really know the time frame because if you have a severe recession, you can delay that. Um, yeah. But if there's enough uh, international demand, you know, China, India, uh, emerging markets, you know, uh, just countries like that, uh, you can get pretty sticky high oil prices, even if even if U.S. demand is is stagnating. Because the supply uh, yeah. side's constrained. I mean, that's really yeah. a long term view, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's only so much investment. And, and as we've seen kind of oil prices go sideways, as we've seen the cost of capital go higher, we've seen a reduction in say U.S. investment and U.S. shale coming online, uh, and so I, I think the long-term view there is to watch what's happening with energy, watch what's happening with copper, uh, you know, some of these things because that's that that kind of gives you some signals on when the next inflation spike might happen, or it gives right. you signals on how deep this current disinflationary period can get. So that's that's probably the the number two thing I'm watching. Um, three would be any notable geopolitical changes uh, relating to, to currency agreements, to uh, war escalations or de-escalations. Obviously, these are all um, kind of factors that are hard to predict. Um, probably tying into that point, or at least you know tying for the third spot. I am watching the gold price. We recently had it. You know, it's kind of testing its its prior highs. Uh, you know, it's not really a firm breakout yet, but it's it's kind of been flirting with that kind of breakout zone. I'm also watching that equities as priced in gold. If you look at, say, the S&P 500, uh, you know, uh, you know, divided by gold, for example, it's been kind of this like arcing rollover. Um, and I'm looking for to see if that if that does continue to the downside or if it does something surprising, if it if it, you know, reverses trend, gold takes a break and S&P 500 keeps going higher. I'm kind of watching that dynamic uh, because, you know, one of the, you know, more inflationary thesis would be essentially that the Fed gets kind of uh, done their tightening cycle. The U.S. enters some degree of recession. The rest of the world uh, in some ways benefits from that um, and is able to have like another growth cycle. And you see things like gold and energy uh, and copper break out compared to things like the NASDAQ, compared to the S&P 500 that are running into more profitability problems or valuation uh, challenges. Uh, and so that, that's probably a third variable I'm watching. So for me, say the five to 10 year view is a lot clearer than any, any given six month view. So I'm right. watching certain factors to kind of navigate that intermediate term. And to be clear with that gold and S&P 500 ratio, are you watching that closely because it usually over time mean reverts? It's not so much that it mean reverts. It's that it, it kind of shows you, I think, what the underlying forces are. So, so generally, in more disinflationary decades, um, you know, commodity prices are cheap. Stocks are doing very well because you know they don't have a lot of uh, labor costs. They don't have a lot of material costs. Okay. Uh, you know, they're doing great in terms of valuation. They're doing great in terms of um, corporate earnings. So whether it's the, you know, the 90s or the 2010s, for example, you have a big rise in equities compared to gold, compared to commodities. Whereas when you look at the 2000s decade, which is a, you know, a more inflationary decade, a more value decade, a more emerging market real estate decade, uh, you know, gold did did quite well compared to the S&P 500. And in this kind of current period, after the the 2010s were so good for equities compared to gold. We're seeing early signs of a rollover, and I want to see if that follows through. And if it were, that that would kind of imply that the 2020s are probably, you know, it kind of solidifies the idea that, you know, U.S. large cap stocks are probably not the best place to, to park the majority of your capital for the next decade. Yeah, got it. Makes sense. Okay, Lynn, thanks a lot for a fantastic interview. I want to remind everyone that you are going to be speaking at the next Rebel Capitalist Live it's going to be May 12th to the 14th in Orlando, Florida. We can't wait for that event. Actually, it's going to be the first time that you're going to be meeting your business partner, Chris McIntosh, as well with Rebel Capitalist Pro. I'm super excited for that. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I know that the prior, <laughs> the prior event that you held uh, that I went to, I know you held a bunch of them, but I, I went to yeah. that one and it was definitely a good event. So I look forward to this one as well. Yeah, I think you were at the one in uh, Houston with Ron Paul, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so we got Mike Maloney this time. We got Peter Schiff. We might even have a debate uh, between you and Peter Schiff and, and Peter Schiff and someone else. So uh, you guys got to get your tickets to Rebel Capitalist Live 
ASAP. It's just rebelcapitalistlive.com. And then, Lynn, can you tell everyone where they can find out more about your work and your website and your blog and everything that you do? Sure. I'm at lynnalden.com, and I, I publish research there, uh, including public articles. And I'm also active on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. Thanks again, Lynn. It's always awesome to talk to you, and I can't wait to see you in May. Thanks for having me. All right.